Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. It is Thursday, September the 5th, 2019. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LaBurge. I I got up unusually early this morning um, because the elk hunt in Colorado, uh, the bow hunt, has been a success. And so um, Jim, who is my precious husband, has been out there in the opening opening bow hunt of the season and um, has been successful. And, you know, what I consider a grocery trip. And so um, so there you go. So that's uh, that's a little family news today. Excited about that. Um, I don't know about you. I did spend a little time giving attention to CNN's marathon climate town hall among the 2020 Democrat candidates for president. Uh, Here would be my takeaway. My my first of all, lots of disturbing moments, particularly for those of us who like meat. Uh, or like to drive cars or have air conditioning or use plastic straws. There were lots of um, uh, lots of moments in last night's CNN. Last night, it was a marathon. It was like seven out. It was crazy. It was so long. Um, this marathon town hall, there were some disturbing moments. It was, it, it was interesting, um, to be certain, and and informative. And I think that you know, depending who actually ends up being the nominee, whatever they said last night will almost certainly be used against them in the uh, general election. There was one moment that I want you to be aware of because it probably will not make the highlight reel. And that is the observation by one voter in the town hall. Now, this voter is is addressing Bernie Sanders during his, you know, 40 minutes uh, on the stage. Uh, So remember that the this is a climate town hall. This is, the, you know, the, the, the giant screen behind them is this Democratic presidential town hall, CNN, big Chiron thing. Um, and it's uh, this this picture of the earth. And it says the climate crisis. And the word crisis is in red. I mean, this is it's there's a little bit of, you know, certainly capitalizing on fear here. So this is what the town hall is supposed to be about. And one voter chooses to one Democrat voter who has the opportunity to ask a question chooses to make basically an observation. This is this individual's observation. There are too many humans on Earth. There are too many humans on Earth. We are, in fact, the the climate threat. And Bernie Sanders, um, who is a one of the leading candidates for the Democratic nomination to be president of the United States, said this. If you're not horrified by this, um, uh, well, I am. Bernie Sanders said, I agree. We need to fund abortions to poor third world countries. 
Okay, the layers of horror here are many. I don't have time to actually peel every layer of this onion, so I might have to write a blog about this later today. There's no hiding the horror here. The worldview behind a statement that would, first of all, agree that there's too many humans on Earth, and then as the solution to there being too many humans on Earth, would recommend, would have as, as something that he would, what, do as president of the United States of America, that he would use federal taxpayer money, because when we send money overseas, that's the money that it is. It's our money. It's the money that we, as the citizens of the United States, give to the government through our taxes. So we're talking here about using American taxpayer dollars to fund abortions for poor people in what he describes as third world countries, which just for a point of reference is not language we use anymore, right? It's the developing world. Uh, It is, um, you know, we don't use third world. It's just not language that's used anymore. So um, first of all, let's let's use language that is um, dignifying to people who live in other parts of the world. Let's recognize the dignity of every person in the world. Let's not suggest that because we're rich, we ought to kill poor people. That's what he said. We who are rich ought to send our money overseas to kill poor people. That would be his his solution to addressing what he views as an issue, which is that there's too many human beings on the earth. Okay. I know. So don't drive off the road and into the ditch, but do consider the worldview that is operating here that fails to recognize the value of every human life, every human being as an image bearer, and this elitist first world ideology that would suggest that we, as the richest country in the world, should send money overseas to kill the babies of poor people. Okay. Next up, Ben Johnson. He's going to get me off the ledge. We've got a story to talk about in out of Mississippi, which was just a gross misrepresentation of Christ and Christianity, but has has a redemptive uh, edge. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right, a right given by God. All right, I promise I've gathered myself. Uh, joining me now is Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can check out what they're doing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Uh, he, he has not only um, the mind of Jesus, he has the heart of Jesus. And uh, I just, I, I love our conversations every week. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Hey, welcome back. Good to be with you and thank you for your passion on this issue. It's an important one. I know I'm supposed to be equipping people to talk about things rationally. I'm not sure that um, that I did that in that first segment, but I will <clears throat> I'll gather my thoughts on that a little more holistically uh, in the hours ahead. Um, ben, let's talk about this story out of Mississippi. Why don't you just tell the story and then you and I can um, can, un, you know, untangle some threads of it. Well, it's, it's uh, really a heartening story when you get down to it, but it, it starts out uh, rather horrifying which is that a, a woman in uh, Mississippi had her uh, brother and uh, his fiance go to a place known as Boone's Camp Event Hall uh, this, uh, this uh, past week, and they were turned away. They wanted to use it for their wedding, and they were told by the owner that it would violate her Christian beliefs because they don't do two kinds of weddings. They don't do any gay marriages, 
and they don't do any interracial marriages based on what they say is in the Bible. Uh, there was a video taken where their mother-in-law went to confront the uh, the owner, and the owner uh, just simply said that this was something she believed was in the Bible, and it would compromise her belief in Scripture to do so. Uh, as you can imagine, there was a significant backlash against uh, this business. There were certain people who said that uh, Mississippi, which has a, a law uh, known as uh, the uh, it was a 2016 law signed by uh, Governor Phil Bryant, uh, defending people uh, in their conscience rights uh, against uh, government infringement on the issue of gay marriage or transgender issues. They said that that had to be repealed, even though actually that law doesn't mention race at all. Uh, when it came down to it, the owner uh, went to her husband, and she did something that was very wise, which is she mentioned to her husband that she had this scriptural view, and her husband said, where's that in the Bible? <laughs> and so eventually they, they talked to their pastor, and she posted a lengthy apology, and she said in there, she found out, and this is a quote, biracial relationships were never mentioned in the Bible. She said that she did this because she had, she had heard this growing up in Mississippi. She had always assumed that this was something that was in the scriptures and that uh, people of two different uh, so-called races were never supposed to marry and that there was some scriptural precedent for it uh, and that she believed it so deeply that it would violate her conscience to go through with that kind of a marriage. As it turns out, of course, there's nothing like that, and if, if uh, we have the time, maybe we could go into something about what the Scripture does say about marriage. But, but she, because of this backlash, she got to discover what the Bible actually teaches about interracial marriage, about uh, so-called races and racial unity, and how God views all of his creation. It, it, is a, it is a story of the transformation that comes when somebody will actually submit themselves to the authority of the Word of God. She had a wrong understanding. She misrepresented what was in the scripture. She it, she set herself under uh, pastoral authority. Her pastor opened the Bible with her, and by actually studying the Word of God, she came to a transformed mind. Instead of this culturally conformed view, um, you know, in this case, something that she grew up understanding in in the culture in which she was raised. A cultural understanding that is not scriptural, and now by the transforming, by the renewing of her mind, she now has a a right and righteous biblical understanding of of this concept. This has played out on social media this week, and so I just it really is a gospel testimony to you know the power of God's word to transform someone, um, and the need for us as believers to willingly sit under the authority of Scripture and allow our views to be changed by it. It's just like Romans 12 in 21st century America. And yes, Ben, let's take a break. And then when we come back, let's talk about what the Bible says um, about, about marriage. I think that's a great conversation for us to have today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. My conversation partner is Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can follow him at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. All right, so uh, welcome back. Ben Johnson is with me this morning. I am Carmen LeBurge. And I, Ben, I did not, uh, I was not even aware of this, but right now, Right now, you and I have new listeners on 89.1 FM in Mankato in the Minnesota Valley. 
We have a brand new signal there as of this morning. People are listening to us in Mankato. And so welcome to our new listeners in the Minnesota Valley. It is uh, it is always fun to get to know new folks. And so welcome to the Faith Radio family. And this conversation with Ben Johnson is one that is ongoing. He and I pick topics uh, each and every week, and we discuss them, seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. Ben, uh, you can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, and you can find the show later on if you want to share it with somebody else at MyFaithRadio.com. It'll be posted there as a podcast. All right, Ben, so um, let's continue the conversation we were having. The headline that, we are, that we're working with is the one out of Mississippi this week. Um, which a lot of people, uh, you know, followed on social media and were, you know, horrified that Jesus was being misrepresented in such a horrible way, um, that this idea that marriage is uh, exclusively, uh, you know, well, it was misrepresented. And now what we're going to talk about is what marriage really is. What does the Bible actually say about marriage when it comes to Christians? Yeah, uh, you, you were talking before the break about how this is a wonderful example of Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, drinking in the scriptures. And what she was reflecting was a cultural understanding that in the Mississippi culture she grew up in, interracial marriages were considered to be wrong, and in fact morally wrong. And uh, uh, in today's culture, uh, you know, perhaps people would have a view of marriage that's also unscriptural on different grounds. What uh, What the scriptures have to say is that What's truly important about a marriage is that uh, you have uh, complementarity. You have a male and a female who bring different aspects of, of uh, life and understanding to each other. And together they are, they are intended to continue uh, the procreation of the human race. But more importantly, they're intended to be a help meet. They're intended for the salvation of one another's souls. Uh, there are a few places in the Bible where sometimes people will, will cite a scripture in order to say that the Old Testament forbade interracial marriage. Uh, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 7 forbade the Israelites from marrying certain Canaanite tribes. And it says in uh, Deuteronomy 7, 3, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, thy daughter shall not give unto his son, or his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. But verse 4 tells us why. It said, For they will turn away thy son from following me, and they will serve other gods. And that's, that keys into what the New Testament says uh, so importantly in uh, in Second uh, Corinthians, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? So we, when he's talking about intermarrying, he's not talking about someone uh, based on their skin color. He's talking about not intermarrying with someone who does not share your faith. That's the only light and darkness that God says cannot mix together in His plan. Uh, there is one instance in the Scripture where people uh, actually oppose a marriage on the basis of uh, a so-called interracial marriage. That would be Numbers chapter 12, where, Mo- where Miriam and Aaron taught Moses over his Ethiopian wife. By the, word, by the way, the, uh, the word Ethiopian there, if you look at it, particularly in the Septuagint, the version I'm most familiar with, the Greek word doesn't necessarily mean Ethiopian, can be anyone from anywhere in Africa, but it literally, the, the term Ethiopos, literally means uh, a blackface. So this is a woman who is, who is uh, of a different skin tone than Moses would be. It's very clear here there's a play going on on words because you have the Ethiopian who is black immediately after taunting Moses over his marriage. God rebukes her, says that I speak to Moses face to face, and when this ends, it says that she has leprosy and her skin is white as snow. So the scripture setting up this contrast between uh, a, a man who is married to a black woman and those who oppose that end up with leprosy 
so that their skin is, is literally as white as snow. If, if you don't like her skin, your skin will be so white uh, that uh, it, nothing will compare to how white your skin is. And, and that's you know, when, where uh, what God has joined together, let no one put us under, particularly over something as incidental as the uh, particular ethnic group of the two people who happen to be married together. So we've had lots of conversations here um, about race and racial, racial reconciliation, um, the, the challenges that we face here in the United States of America, particularly because of the history of slavery. Um, and I'm, I'm recalling conversations uh, like, um, well, the book is called One Blood. Um, it just talks about, you know, right, the human race. Uh, it talks about us being uh, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Like, right, we're all, and, and, you know, I mean, even if people want to get into the conversation and they want to go like sort of a more uh, contemporary scientific route, right, let's have a 23andMe conversation. Let's have an Ancestry.com conversation. And let's uh, let's just acknowledge even those um, uh, scientific methodologies today point to something called mitochondrial Eve. We have one mother, like, right? It's, it, it's, this scripture is accurate in its portrayal and of, of how it is that God brought forth humanity in his own, own image. And we all bear the image of God. And it doesn't matter what your skin pigmentation is. You and I stand on equal footing at creation as image bearers of God. We stand on equal footing at the cross in need of salvation. And we are going to stand on equal footing in the kingdom of heaven if we come, uh, you know, to a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about marriage, we're talking about something that, um, that God gives us as an image here that reflects a reality that is eternal. From Genesis to Revelation, we did this book uh, on the show as well by Sue Sire. From Genesis to Revelation, God takes a bride. I mean, that's the name of the book. And, and we ought to understand what marriage is, and we ought not to allow any, um, any cultural corruption of it to, to sort of usurp this biblical understanding of what it is and what it is intended uh, to be. And so thank you, Ben, for helping us see today not only the complementary nature of marriage as male and female, that that is, you know, that's a God-given reality of it, um, but also this, this, the reality that marriage is given in order that we could be drawn closer to Christ. Like, it, that's what it is about. And it's such a joy to walk in marriage with another believer, um, you know, because we're walking toward the Father's house. We're, you know, it's just, marriage is awesome if it's rightly understood. Maybe that's what I want to say. But it truly is, and thank you for mentioning the mitochondrial DNA. The, the fact of the matter is all of these divisions about who you're supposed to marry, not the jebusites, hivites, parasites, uh, essentially we're talking about the difference between maybe a, a Frenchman and a, and a Greek. Uh, these are not racial differences as we think of them. People didn't think of, of skin color as a racial idea. That's a, that's a fairly new construct in the post-segregation era. So... Uh, we, the way that we think of it is entirely unscriptural. The only thing that God truly sees when he looks at us is our relationship with him, whether we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and we walk in fellowship with him, and whether those whom we marry are going to further us in that walk or uh, retard our progress and turn our hearts towards other things. So we have to choose wisely. And you obviously have, and I, I hope that you both enjoy the relationship and the moose that you're going to eat today. <laughs> Not moose, it's elk. 
We're not oh, eating I'm sorry. elk I today. Misunderstood. I thought it was moose. No. Okay. There was, however, there was, however, a bull moose who charged uh, Jonathan, who is one of my uh, stepsons, and um, oh, and that okay. story is maybe one for another day. Yeah, elk steak is the best thing in the world, and, and Christian marriage <laughs> is even better. <laughs> That'll be the quote of the day. I will post that on Twitter, and uh, those who follow me at Carmen LeBurge will it be easy to find. Ben Johnson, who is the rights writer. That'll be the quote of the day. Um, Yeah. Ben, thank you so much, as always. Thank you. God bless. You guys can check out what Ben is doing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. I'll be right back. As Hurricane Dorian continues moving up the uh, southeastern coast of the United States, South Carolina is feeling the effects this morning So let's be continuing to pray the news in relationship to what is now a strengthened Category 3 hurricane with sustained winds of 115 miles per hour. Uh, And so we want to be, you know, praying for folks in the path of the storm. The flooding in Charleston County has already uh, begun. And uh, so just need to be, you know, praying for folks in terms of the storm surge. But the folks who are in the wake of the storm in the Bahamas are now... Um, in the midst of being rescued, the U.S. Coast Guard is heavily involved in those rescues. Um, and we had the opportunity to actually tape a conversation yesterday with a pastor of the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, well, Kirk in Nassau, Bahamas. His name is Bryn McPhail. We're going to bring you that conversation from on the ground in Nassau, Bahama, uh, up next. We had a huge garden growing up in Montana. Every spring, we prepared the soil, planted seeds, and then harvested in the fall. Watching those seeds turn into produce always felt like a miracle. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, I bet I drove my parents crazy asking all sorts of questions about gardening. How could a tiny seed turn into food? Why do some plants grow faster than others? And why do we have to pull out these weeds? I wanted to know all of the details. It's a good idea to keep that same inquisitive spirit when it comes to being a good financial steward. You can ask practical questions like, how can I prepare for the unexpected? Or, how much should I save for retirement? It's important to ask deeper questions too, like, how much is enough for me? Do my financial decisions reflect my priorities? Here's the parallel. Good questions are the seeds of good stewardship. And when we're good stewards, our lives are full of contentment, confidence, and generosity. Hey, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am joined now by Pastor Bryn McPhail. He is the pastor of the St. Andrews Kirk in Nassau, Bahamas. Bryn, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Glad to be here with you. Um, let's talk about the status of things. Take us on a, you know, take us on a tour of of your current reality down there. Well, here in Nassau, we we, we have the most minor of flooding and damage, and we're, we're we don't even want to talk about Nassau because our brothers and sisters in Abaco and Grand Bahama have been absolutely devastated by the storm. And so all attention and soon resources will be focused on them. Okay, so for those of us who um, have never been to the Bahamas, help us understand a little bit of what you're talking about. Because so Nassau is uh, is fairly good size, um, 
in terms of population. But as soon as I say that, it's nothing like comparison to a major city in the United States. So give people a little sense of what Nassau is like. And then when we talk about um, Abaco and we talk about Grand Bahama, what are we talking about um, in terms of those islands, distance from you, those kinds of things? Give us a little bit of a sense of, uh, of that geography. Yeah, that, that's really important because I've had a lot of people reach out from the U.S. and Canada worrying about us, but we, we were a long way from the center of the storm. Nassau it has a population of about 300-ish thousand persons. It's at least three-quarters of the Bahamian population, uh, but the Bahamas is 700 islands and keys uh, stretching as far north as across from Fort Lauderdale, uh, down south, um, just just uh, just north of the Turks and Caicos. So we we span quite a distance, and so it's not uncommon in a hurricane that two or three or ten of our islands get it much worse, uh, while other islands are unscathed. And so Nassau is a small island, 22 by six miles. So we're very small in size, uh, but it mo- as I said, most of the population lives here. Grand Bahama has an excellent infrastructure. Uh, its major city is Freeport. Uh, I'm not sure what the up-to-date statistics are, but my thinking is 50, 60,000 people live there and possibly 20 to 30 in Abaco. Okay, and Abaco is a fairly small island, and Grand Bahama and Abaco absolutely were shredded by this hurricane. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is that, is that, am I using accurate language? Yes. Um, I've been hearing, and, and this isn't hyperbole, the language I hear about Abaco in particular, because it's the first to kind of emerge. Uh, as you know, the storm was over Grand Bahama most recently. And so we're just getting messages in from there. But the, the language used around Abaco is war zone. It, it, it looks like there was, there was a war for quite some time. I've also heard it's like a tornado just hit a large, much larger area than typically what a tornado would do. Uh, so it's tornado-like damage, uh, but spread over a, a large piece of land. Um, again, I'm talking with Bren McPhail. He is the senior pastor at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Kirk in Nassau, Bahamas. You can actually check them out at uh, St. Andrew, that's just S-T, Andrews Kirk, St. Andrews Kirk, K-I-R-K, which is just church for those of us who are, you know, <clears throat> Presbyterian, dot com. So com. great place to um, connect there with Bren. Bren, if folks want to reach out and help through um, your denomination, which is the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we understand that they're doing that at epc.org backslash donate backslash emergency relief. But if they just go to the EPC website, which is epc.org, there are there are ways to do that directly. Tell us what um, you anticipate when and what and sort of how, because this is the logistics of um, of reengaging with folks in uh, in those places, you know, who are going to need immediate relief and then long term recovery. That is a great question, and the answer to it seems to change every day. Uh, Initially, my hope was to catch a plane in later this week, but as I mentioned, the the runway is still flooded in in Marsh Harbor, Abaco, 
and the situation is so desperate, it's really just the Coast Guard and emergency services only at the moment. So I don't see regular persons like myself uh, getting into Abaco anytime this week. Uh, so what does that look like? It looks like we need to have a hybrid plan whereby we prepare to receive persons who evacuate because their home's no longer there or no longer suitable to live in. So, so we're working on a plan where we might receive some families and, or at least help them find suitable accommodations here. Uh, but also our denomination has been very helpful in pledging resources uh, for emergency supplies and rebuilding down the road. So um, I, I clicked on your website, and I see that this coming Sunday, um, the, the sermon is, How Can I Be Certain of God's Concern for My Pain? And mm-hmm. I guess I'm wondering, Bren, was that already the sermon for this Sunday, or is, um, is that the sermon that, you know, has been called forth out of the circumstances? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's kind of scary in an in a interesting way. I plan my sermons out months and months and months ahead of time. And by no stretch am I in the middle of a series on suffering. This was a one-off. I wanted to do three sermons on pressing questions. And this was to be the first in that mini-series. And it just so happens by God's providence, uh, it, it looks like to be the right text and the right message for Sunday um, I've had people say, Bryn, if you have that kind of influence, um, you need to preach <laughs> on winning the lottery and things like that. Of course, I won't do that. Hey, um, we're going to continue this conversation in just a minute. I'm going to actually ask Bryn the question, how can I be certain of God's concern for my pain? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The waves crash and tide rolls out. It's an angry sea, but there is no doubt that the lighthouse will keep shining out. I'm continuing my conversation now with Pastor Bryn McPhail. He is the senior pastor at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Kirk in Nassau, Bahamas. We recognize that Nassau did not take the brunt of Hurricane Dorian, but he is in relationship with and obviously proximity to uh, churches and people uh, who who really we, we can't talk to yet because they are in places that are unreachable. Um, but Bren is right there on the front line of what will be the response uh, there in Nassau, Bahamas. So you've got a, a, a sermon prepared for this Sunday. God has obviously been tilling the soil of this for some time. Um, and so I'm just going to ask you the question, how can I be certain of God's concern for my pain? And what, one of the things that I'm going to caution people is we want to answer that question instinctively. Our theology says, of course he does. But if we, if we stop and think, our experience may cause us to question that. When we, we think through the long list of hardships in our life, is God concerned about our pain becomes a real question, especially if, if you affirm, as we do, that God is sovereign and that nothing comes to pass without him allowing it or ordaining it. So with that in mind, how can we be sure God is concerned? And, and so I, I take us through a long chapter in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. It's the raising of Lazarus. And I, I don't want to give away the whole sermon, but if you, if you know the text, it, Lazarus is sick. 
and Jesus doesn't go to him right away. He doesn't answer the call right away. He doesn't do what people want him to do right away. And, and then Lazarus dies. He's ultimately brought back to life. But in that process, we, we get a glimpse into what Jesus, into what God thinks about death, pain, and suffering. All right. So because you say process, the way you say process, I feel, um, I, I feel obligated to ask what your heritage is. Uh, yes, uh, I'm, I'm a strange one. I am a Canadian who pastors in the Bahamas, and I've lived here in the Bahamas for the last 10 years. I love that. Okay, tell us about the Bahamian people. I mean, let, you know, we we are going to get to know them in ways that most of us have uh, not even been interested before. And yeah. we recognize that they are our, you know, southern neighbors. Um, it's a country. I think that's going to surprise a whole lot of people. Um, just talk with us about uh, the Bahamas and the Bahamian people. Well, I might make an analogy and say that just as you might say Americans are different depending on what state you're from, we would say similar things about Bahamians depending on what island you're from. Folks from Long Island are different from people from Cat Island, different from people from Nassau, different from Abaco and so on. But what I what I see in the what I see in the Bahamian people is uh, a level of unity and fraternity and brotherhood, if I can call it that, uh, that is unmatched to me. And people say, "Oh, you're suffering for Jesus in the Bahamas," and people think of the resorts and the beaches. But the reason I've stayed ten years has nothing to do with beaches and oceans. It has everything to do with this wonderful. Uh, country of people. Talk about ministry in the context of, um, of of what most of us think of as a resort community, because my guess is that your ministry is with people who are there, you know, living there. They're there. They're there. They are there day in and day out. And then every Sunday, you also have tourists who are there as well. Sometimes those people have emergent needs in a foreign country, and because you know they think of you as a North American. Uh, my guess is you've got all kinds of interesting opportunities and experiences related not only to ministry with people who are there all the time, but ministry to people who are there infrequently but do turn to the church for help in times of need. That's true. And and our makeup, if you will, is even more unique when you take into account our congregation's 209 years old. So so we're the third oldest church in the country. Uh began by Scottish settlers a long time ago. Uh, but now we're, I, I want to say we're more of a community church. We send a bus into the nearby neighborhood, which is Bain and Grant's town. It's one of the more impoverished, higher crime neighborhoods. Uh, but we've adopted it as our, our closest neighbor. And we fill a bus full of young people and a few of their parents every Sunday and we minister to them. We have an orphanage uh, for teenagers, Ramferly Homes, that we've adopted, and they bring a bus full uh, with 30 teenagers every Sunday as well. So we do have a very unique makeup to our congregation. Bren, um, again, thank you so much for carving out this time today um, and, and sharing with us. Uh, as we've got, we've got, you know, a, a couple of minutes left, I want you to just share with listeners all across North America um, your heart for the Bahamian people and invite North Americans 
to to have not only a heart of concern, but a generous spirit in the days and weeks and months and years to come in terms of helping to rebuild these communities? Yeah, I've been I've been so impressed and pleased and heartened by the responses already, whether from big corporations in the tourism industry like Disney and so forth, or whether it's professional athletes from the Bahamas like NBA star Buddy Heald, uh, or just everyday persons who've been emailing asking how to help. Uh, we're it's unclear the way forward. Uh, that there, there is some disagreement as to how to rebuild something as devastated as Abaco. Uh, but my understanding is our church building in Abaco, we have a mission post in Marsh Harbor. My understanding, our church is still standing, and it's one mm. of the few buildings that may be in good condition. And so my hope is that we may be able to leverage that as some kind of distribution center when that's appropriate, uh, but but I don't have confirmations. All I have are some fuzzy photographs taken from helicopters at this point. Uh, but I'm hopeful that our church building in Marsh Harbor Abaco is still standing, and and if it is, uh, that could be a real beacon of hope and light for the people there. Bren, um, can we pray for you? And you will just stand there as a um, as a representative of everybody that is. Um, in the Bahamas and affected by this and, and on the front line of the church's response. Can we, can we do that? Will you receive that? Please, please. Father God, we, um, we lift hands, we lift voices, we lift hearts, we bow our heads before your throne of grace and mercy. And we ask for a dispensation of your spirit in a particularly acute and uh, felt way not only in Bryn's life, but in the life of every person who is now standing on the front line of response um, throughout the Bahamas. And in particular, Father, we lift up the plight of the Bahamian people who have lost their homes. They have lost their, um, their, their places where they gather. They have lost people. They have lost neighbors. And God, we simply ask that you would have them not lose hope, that this would be an opportunity for the church to um, be a place of refuge and strength, that people would turn to you as a very present help in this time of great travail and trouble. And Father, that you would um, not only use your word, but messengers like Bren to assure people that we can be certain of your concern for us, even in the midst of our pain, as deep and as great as it may be. Um, Father, bring, um, bring peace, bring restoration, bring hope, Um, And Father, by your grace, let this be an opportunity for the church to bear witness to the goodness of who you are in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Bren, thank you so much. All right, friends, we got to take a quick break and then we'll be back. So as we uh, continue to survey what's happening with Hurricane Dorian, we we pray the news, right? We we have talked at length about the need to prepare in advance as best we can to mitigate the uh, effects of such storms. And so if you are still in a place where you're in a position to prepare, then do that. Um, If you are in, in a place that is in the path of the storm, you know, as you endure this, um, know that your brothers and sisters are praying for you. 
And, you know, I know that many of us uh, heard Marianne Williamson's um, opinion that if we were just all focused our mindful energy, uh, we could turn the hurricane in a different direction. Um, that is um, not, that is just actually not how things work. And so um, let's be let's be people who are mindful of what God has revealed about how things work, about how he has designed things to work, uh, and about how things work since the fall. So let's remind ourselves that prior to man's fall, all of creation was perfect. And now, post-fall, as we live a long way from Eden, not just geographically, but in terms of time, the passage of time, all creation now groans with eager longing for man's redemption. And storms are a part of that. And and the, the reality of that which is wrought by storms, the devastation wrought by storms, gives us, frankly, an opportunity to show forth the gospel and to be people who walk into places where people are broken and hurting and to declare hope and to uh, be people who seek to restore others. So let's be redemptive in the way that we engage. Just a reminder that in addition to epc.org, there are lots of uh, places where you could give of uh, of your financial resources and the benefits of your life and labor to support people who are going to need money to recover um, and resources. And then you can also, you know, looking ahead, you, you might think about uh, a trip to the Bahamas that's not really about a vacation, but about a mission trip. And so there you go. Just a, just a thought on that front as well as you are looking at the remainder of this year and into uh, the years to come. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. In the next hour, I'm going to talk with Kathy Branzell from the National Day of Prayer about praying uh, in remembrance of 9-11 and also a big national prayer summit taking place in Eden Prairie. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.